If you would please take your Bibles and open to Galatians chapter 5. The book of Galatians chapter 5. In our series of meditations, we have considered in different ways the matter of crucifixion. We've looked at the cross, being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20, dying with Christ as seen in Romans 6. Last week we looked at the world being crucified to me and I to the world, as Paul put it. If you summarize what we've seen these past few weeks, you'll find at least three realities. And the first is that crucifixion means the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Our part in this means turning away from the old and turning to the new, otherwise known as repentance. And the symbol or the sign of this turning from the old to the new, of the doing away with the old and the coming of the new, is seen in baptism. Being buried with Christ in baptism and being raised to a new life. But no one has asked me, what is this new thing, this new life, and how is it different from the old? So, for example, uh, we're told in Romans 6, uh, Paul writes, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united also with him in his resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with him. But what does this all mean? What is the new life and what is the old self? What is the difference between the new? Because if you've ever been baptized or seen someone who's been baptized by immersion, it would seem that the person who is put into the water and then comes out of the water is the same person. They have the same name. Same ethnicity, same skills, same language, and so on. So what is old and what is new? In our meditations on crucifixion, we have looked at two passages in Galatians. The first is in chapter 2, verse 20, which I think is probably more familiar than the others. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. The other we looked at last week, which is found in chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is, however, a third mention of crucifixion or crucifying something here in Galatians, and that will be our text today. And I would suspect for at least next Sunday, and maybe a couple more. It's verse number 24 of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. What I see Paul doing here is presenting the same contrast but in a different way. Instead of old and new, he's talking about the flesh and the spirit. Um, In fact, from chapter 5 to the end of Galatians, he will talk about the flesh eight times. He will mention it eight times in uh, these two chapters. Now, if you're reading the NIV, the 1984 version, as I have just read, you will find that instead of the flesh, 
the translators have put in the sinful nature. The New English Bible has the lower nature. Um, just a digression. I will digress several times in this sermon, by the way. Um, translators sometimes, of a necessity, not only translate but interpret. Okay. And I think that's what the translators here of uh, the NIV have done. And I, I think in this case, they've actually gotten it wrong. The word that Paul uses in Greek is sarx. It has different meanings. But it is the same word that is used in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh or in the body. He doesn't say that I live in the sinful nature. Okay, But here in verse 24 of chapter 5, they put sinful nature. Um, there's certain things we need to get straight, I think, before we move on. According to the scriptures, we are embodied creatures. Having a body is a part of who we are. This is how God made us. If you follow the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption, we find that in each of us, to be human means to have a body. Adam was not given a body as a result of sin. Okay. We read in Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Living after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, there is a tendency and it is tempting to see the physical as in fact being evil and the spiritual as being that which is good or worthwhile. Uh, early heresies in the church sought, I think, to discount the goodness of creation um, and the goodness of, of the material world, that only the spirit was good, and this is a very Greek way of looking at things, only the spirit is good, and that which is physical is of necessity bad. So, if, if we think that way, if we're not careful, when we come to passages in Galatians that talk about the flesh and the spirit, which I think Paul means the old and the new, we will take a view of the physical as being wrong. That the body is bad and the spirit is good. In the passage we'll look at uh, at some length today and the Lord willing next week, Paul gives us two lists of things. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And again, the temptation is to see actions of the body as being wrong and attitudes of the spirit as being those things that are right. The physical is sinful. The attitudes that we have spiritually are what are important. I think we will see as we go through this that that's not the case. It's not a matter of material versus the immaterial or the non-material. This is a Gnostic view. This is a dualistic view and it is not biblical. God created the physical world. You say, yes, but the physical world is fallen. Well, so is the spiritual world. It's not as though our spirits are untouched or untainted by sin. Okay. So, when Paul says the sinful nature and the word he uses is flesh, that sort of fits into this way of thinking that the flesh, bad, spirit, good, which is not what he is saying at all. What Paul is speaking of is that which is natural to us as human beings. We have bodies. We are embodied creatures. We live after the fall, and so our nature is, in fact, fallen. That's just the way it is. 
It is worth noting that even though God made Adam, and Adam was without sin, he was... I used to say that Adam was perfect. I don't know that I would say that because perfect speaks of a completion. Adam had to be told what to do. Okay. It isn't as though God made him in, with a physical body and, okay, that's secondary, but Adam, it's your spirit that's really important. Well, God had to tell Adam what to do and what not to do. That is to say, Adam, without sin, was still dependent upon God, as we are as well. To be a human being is to have a body and is to be dependent and require instruction and direction from God. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and so what it means to be human has now become twisted. But again, it is not Adam and Eve sinned, so now the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. We remain dependent in need of instruction, except now we don't want to be instructed. We are in rebellion against God. So in this passage, beginning in verse number 16, as Paul contrasts the life in the flesh, the life of the spirit, he is telling us, you need to be directed, you need to be instructed, you need to be led by the spirit. In verse 18, if you are led by the spirit, verse 16, live by the spirit, verse 25, keep in step with the spirit. The contrast here in this passage and then he'll work it into chapter 6, is between the old way of living and the new way of living. The old life and the new life, the flesh and the spirit. But again, not the physical versus the non-physical. So, uh, I'm going to read our text today, but I will read flesh where the NIV, the 1984 edition, has sinful nature. So, look if you would, beginning in verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. I think it should become clear, and perhaps it isn't, hopefully it will be as we go along. This isn't a matter of physical versus non-physical or material versus non-material. Rather, the question is, where does your identity lie? What is it that identifies you? And we're given two options. Either the actions of the flesh or the actions of the spirit, which stand in opposition to each other. So, in verse number 16, at the beginning of all this, he says, Live by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, another 
aside here. Not sure why, but the NIV has live by the Spirit, whereas other translations have um, walk by the Spirit. And those of you who know Greek, the word that is used is, is for walking. Um, and it connects with verse number 25. Keep in step with the Spirit. Um, but you will notice that the first part of verse number 25 says, since we live by the Spirit. And so, perhaps that's what the translators have gone with. It's a present tense. It means an ongoing action. We are, in fact, to keep in step. We are to walk. We are to live in the Spirit and not in the deeds of the flesh. We have two options, basically, as embodied creatures. To walk in the way the Spirit would have us live, as he instructs us, as he guides us. Or we can gratify the desires of the flesh. The question may come up, can we not, or may we not, not cannot, because we do, but may we not, in fact, do both? Um, and Paul says no. Verse 17, for the, def- the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. They're in opposition. It's a binary thing. It's, you've got one on the one side, the flesh, and on the other, you have the spirit. The differences will be spelled out as we have the two lists, the actions of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The second question that may come up, and this I think I've been asked perhaps more than anything else in my time as a pastor, is does doing one automatically negate the other? In other words, if I do one, does that mean I will stop doing the other? Um, I would say no. But this is not easily explained or answered. It's something I think that we will see as the passage unfolds. I will say that we are called to obey, and this implies that our actions are not automatic. We have to be told, you must obey. Well, if I'm walking in the Spirit, won't I automatically have the fruit of the Spirit? Again, I would say no. Another digression here. We must affirm that something has happened in human history. That is, that Jesus was crucified, he died, he was buried, and rose from the dead. This has already happened. And as the church, we are a group that recognize this reality. At the same time, there is more to come. And so, what theologians call the already, not yet, that Jesus has, in fact, died for us to redeem us and has begun the process of redeeming us, but it is not yet completed. It's not yet completed. So the gospel has two aspects, if you wish. The already of what Christ has done and the not yet of when it will finally be fulfilled when he returns. But living when and where we do, we find the culture rejects either one or both of these aspects. In the modern age, in the Enlightenment, people came to the conclusion that we had already arrived. So the already for the modern age is not what Jesus did, it is for us. And so I've mentioned this. Uh, The death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the turning point in human history. But for modern people, they don't see that. They see the enlightenment, and depending on who your hero is, a particular character, you know, Descartes, um, Descartes, or Locke, or Rousseau, or somebody, that that's when things really turn. Marx, perhaps. Um, For us as Christians, no, the already is, in fact, what happened when Christ 
died and was buried and rose again. In 1992, a man named Francis Fukuyama wrote The End of History and the Last Man. And he wrote, What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. In other words, for Francis Fukuyama, Already, not yet? No, no. Already, already. Okay, there's no not yet. We have, in fact, already reached that point. That's the modern way of thinking. And you'll notice that he wrote that in 92. Uh, some very bad things have happened since 92, and apparently it is not the end of history. Um, the not yet has not yet happened. Those who reject modernity, the postmoderns, reject the already. Um, they're very much into the not yet. And if you read them at all, postmodernists are very much, in, they're very ambiguous about things. And so they sort of see hu- human history as sort of open-ended and never, there will never be a yet for them. Okay? So there's no already and there's no not yet. You're like, okay, what are you going on and on about? This is what surrounds us. And whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, oftentimes... This comes into our thinking. So much so that I would say that the church oftentimes has forgotten the already and sometimes has forgotten the not yet as well, which is tragic. We hear people saying, don't judge. And in some sense, what they are implying, rightly or wrongly, um, let me back up, they say, don't judge rightly or wrongly, but what they're implying is, in fact, there will never be a final judgment. In other words, don't judge someone because there is, there, there's nothing by which to judge them. But no, we would say there is, in fact, a point in the future in which we will all stand before God and we will be judged. Okay. But for the people around us, they see history as open-ended. There's no final word, no final judgment. It's just going to sort of go on indefinitely. As God's people, we must acknowledge that Jesus has come, that he was crucified, and that the new has come, the new age has begun in the person of Jesus Christ. That's already happened, but the not yet is we live in an age of injustice, where evil is done and oftentimes not answered. It's not corrected. But there is something beyond this. That's the not yet. We are to work for justice here and now. I think that's really important. We know that complete and full justice won't happen until the Lord Jesus returns. So Paul can talk about the fact that Jesus has come and we now have union with him. And yet at the same time, he can talk to believers like you and me about the works of the flesh. Because we are already God's people, but we're not always acting like it. The the end of our redemption has not yet happened. And that's what verse 24 is about. We have to crucify the flesh. But we'll see that as we go along. So, verse 17. The flesh needs the spirit. The spirit gives us instruction. He gives us revelation. He gives us life. He is the one who gives us direction. Uh, 
but the flesh rebels against the spirit. The flesh basically says, you're not the boss of me. I'm not dependent. I am independent. I'm an individual. I can do what I want. And so Paul says, so that you do not do what you want. You know what is the right thing to do, and in fact, you don't do that. We want to do what's right, but the flesh desires something else. You may remember the story of Cain, where God speaks to him and he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The fallen flesh desires. It desires that which is contrary to God's instructions. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. That is to say, okay, the already we are already God's people, and yet we still mess up. We still do things we should not do. But we are not under the law. That is to say, we are not cursed. We have, in fact, been set free from the curse of the law. Because the curse of the law is, if you don't keep every single thing in the law, you've broken them all. Well, that's not... The, That is no longer the way it is. So now, verses 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious, Paul says. And he gives a list here. Fifteen sins, which can be categorized in a number of ways, and I would suggest that they fall into four categories. First of all, sexual sins. Secondly, religious sins or ritual sins. Thirdly, social sins. That's how I deal with my neighbor. And lastly, Drinking sins, if I could put it that way. The sexual sins are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. The religious or ritual sins are idolatry and witchcraft or sorcery. And then the social sins, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, you know, throwing a temper tantrum, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And then the drinking sins, interestingly enough, are drunkenness and orgies. Um, We'll come back to that. We could put these sins, these 15 sins, I think, into four categories again in a different way. First of all, self-gratification rather than loving your neighbor. For Paul, sexual deviance of every kind, and Paul says sexual immorality, is by its nature unloving. Even though in our culture it is oftentimes referred to as a loving relationship, um, Paul sees it as self-gratification rather than loving your neighbor. Because God has said, this is the way you're supposed to live. We who are dependent upon God's instructions has given us instructions. And when we, in fact, violate those instructions, we are gratifying our own desires and we are not loving our neighbor as we should. Secondly, the religious sins, putting something in the place of God, usually yourself, Thirdly, we refuse to love our neighbor. And that's where you have the long list of these social sins. And then lastly, being out of control. You'll notice that Paul begins with sexual immorality and he ends with orgies. He's bringing us back to the point where he began his list and trying to make his readers aware that sin is a vicious cycle. You come full circle at a certain point in your life. Apart from the grace and the work of the Spirit, there is no escape. Let me briefly go through these sins that Paul mentions. 
And by the way, this is the flesh, this is the old. Okay. So when we, in fact, become a new person, these things are to be put aside because they belong to the old. Sexual sins. You'll notice that Paul begins with sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Um, in his other list, in other letters, Paul mentions sexual sins as primary. Um, there's that famous verse in 1 Corinthians 6 where uh, sexual immorality is seen as the one sin against the body. Um, we find this in Jesus, by the way, as well. We're not going to see Paul as some cranky old guy who didn't enjoy life. Um, Jesus mentions sexual immorality before theft and murder. This is not simply prudishness um, that somehow focuses on sexual deviance. By the way, I don't know if you saw in the news this week uh, that Bill Maher uh, sort of went off on a rant on William Barr, our Attorney General, and Justice Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court, and said that these men belong to some strange cult called the Catholic Church that seems obsessed with the matter of sex. Um, one might take that attitude in coming to Paul's list of sins, but the reality is that Paul is seeing it as self-gratification, self-indulgence, rather than loving one's neighbor as one should. For Paul, this is what sexual deviance is about. And by the way, by that we don't mean what people would normally... like homosexual sins. It's heterosexual sins as well. Fornication, adultery. I mean, these fit into the category. And this is, in fact, going against God's instructions. Religious sins. Um, if sexual sins have as their essence self-gratification, uh, it makes sense that Paul did mention idolatry and witchcraft. You say, well, I, I don't see the connection. What is the connection between sexual sins and idolatry or witchcraft? In Galatia and in Asia Minor, idolatry was the norm for pagan worship. It was, in essence, putting something in the place of God. Instead of worshiping the true God, you worship something else. Sorcery comes from the word that our word pharmacy comes from. It implies the use of drugs in worship. But it also implies the use of magic. And again, I will digress a bit here. I think magic in that context is the equivalent of technology in our world today. Magic represents the way to get what you want through a series of steps or techniques. Magic and religion are not the same. They're quite different. Magic has a very specific goal in mind. I want this. I want X. Therefore, I will do whatever things I have to do in order to get what I want. Religion is, in fact, is supposed to be thinking of the general welfare. We're here to worship God. We're here to be with our brothers and sisters and with our neighbors. Magic is all about manipulation. Religion is about submission to God's will. Magic is about the individual. Religion is about the community. Magic is very instrumental. You know, this is how I get what I want. 
In fact, in religion, we are to worship God for who he is, not simply for what we can get out of it. Magic is not about a relationship except between the person who wants something and the person who has the magical incantations for you to get what you want. The heart of religion is about relationship, that we belong to God and we belong to one another. I could go on and on, but I think magic is individualistic, it is pragmatic, it is non-relational, and it is goal-directed. Individualistic, pragmatic, non-relational, goal-directed. In short, these are the things our culture celebrates. And sadly, this is how the gospel is presented by many in the church today. It's individualistic. It's presented as pragmatic, non-relational. You don't have to be, you don't have to join a church. You don't have to be part of a group. Because people are afraid of doing that. Oh, don't worry, you don't have to. And that it's goal-directed. You get out of the Christian faith whatever it is you want. Quickly, the social sins. These are sins against our neighbors. Um, Rather than going through them individually, I would simply say, if you look at this list, they are the opposite of what Paul commanded in verse number 14. If you look at verse 14, we, we start at verse 16. Verse 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, guess what? If I hate my neighbor, if there's discord, jealousy, if I'm throwing a temper tantrum, if I have selfish ambition, uh, factions, divisions, envy, and all this, I do not live, love my neighbor as I should. I'm walking in the old way, the way of the flesh. Then the fourth, the drinking sins. Um, We've talked about this before, but just briefly, drinking alcohol is not prohibited in scripture. Drunkenness is. Okay. So alcohol is not forbidden. It is drunkenness that is. Um, Wonderful verse, uh, passage in Psalm 104 he makes grass for the cattle and plants, uh, and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. We saw in the series on miracles that the first miracle that Jesus performed was changing water into wine, into very good wine, by the way. But drink, drunkenness is forbidden. In Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What one finds is that when one is drunk, one loses self-control and acts in a way that is less than human. It is a person becomes dehumanized while they are in an intoxicated state. They're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. Instead, they are filled with wine. And I think this is where orgies fits in. Again, I said Paul's coming full circle. He's sort of tying a, a knot in it there. But orgy is something in which drunkenness is, it helps. Okay, It helps if you lose all self-control. Um, and so I put it in this fourth category of drinking sins, if you wish. Paul ends this section with these words. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, this the old way, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think this is a shocking statement. 
it certainly can't be the first time that the Galatians have heard this. He's told them as much when he was with them. I warn you as I did before, he tells them. It's Paul saying, if you do these things, you can then not be a child of God. You're not a child of God. Is Paul saying that in order to be a child of God, you have to keep certain rules? Well, that's what the guys from Jerusalem had been telling the Galatians, and that's not what Paul is saying. It's the old and the new. The old is the way of the flesh. The, sin, the sinful nature in us that does not want to be told what to do. That says to God, you can't tell me what to do. And the new way, the Spirit guides us. We look to the Spirit. We know that we are dependent. We know we can't do it on our own. And we look to the Spirit to give us understanding. Paul is not saying that someone who commits these sins is no longer a child of God. Because if that were the case, I think no one would be in the family of God. I think he is speaking of those who continue in this way of life. In essence, they haven't left the old. They're staying in the old, and Paul really has a problem with that. Secondly, I think Paul is saying that sin is a very serious matter and something that we need to take seriously. The Lord willing, next week we will look at the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. So far we have looked at the negative the old, that which has been crucified. Then we will look at the new. But then we'll also have to deal with the question, okay, I'm, I see myself as part of the new, I have new life, why do I still do these things? And what can I do to stop doing these things? This is a familiar passage, I think, to most of us. The fruit of the Spirit, particularly, we know these passages. But I want us to see them in terms of what we've been looking at with crucifixion. The old and the new. That which is crucified. And the new life that results after death. Because of the death of Christ, because we have been crucified with Christ, now we have a new life. What does that look like? I think as Paul sees it, and as we should see it, we start off in this world in a condition he would call the flesh. We are born into human families with certain ethnicities, certain territories, and this, you know, certain places. This is where we are born, where we grow up. Um, but no matter where we are born, when we are born, wherever it is, we find that we have desires that are contrary to what God would have us do. And if, in fact, you would let us loose, we would do all sorts of things that Paul mentions in verses 19 to 21. By the way, if you have a society in which everyone is let loose to do whatever they want, I think you will end up with not a very happy and certainly not a thriving society. Um, God has established his kingdom through his son. There is a particular way the citizens of the kingdom are supposed to live. And people who want to live like they belong in the old kingdom have no place in the new kingdom. If you think about it, surprising, it would be very surprising if they did. You could continue to live the way that you did and now you can be in the new place but you can still do the old things. It doesn't make sense. 
With the announcing of the good news, the gospel by Jesus, God's spirit begins to work and people are renewed. People are redeemed. And they are slowly but surely being brought to the place that God wants us to be as human beings. Adam and Eve messed that up. And through Jesus, God is redeeming us and bringing us to the place where we are supposed to be, what he intends for human beings. We are being recreated. He created Adam and Eve, but now we're being recreated from the old to the new. And in this new recreation, we find that death to the old way is necessary and there is new life. We live life in the new life in the spirit. It's the new life, I think, that we need to think about. And the Lord willing, this is what we will look at next week. It's, again, no one asked me about this, but if, if we die to the old and we are alive to the new, what, is, what does the new look like? Well, we'll see that next week. Um, my concern, and let me mention here at the end of the sermon, is that when you read what we looked at today, verses 19 to 21, you will say, Damon, I never did the things that Paul talks about. This list of sins that Paul gives us, these 15 sins, I have not done these things. I'd say two things. First of all, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's not like, you know, you check this off and like, oh, I, I didn't do any of these, so I'm okay. It is, by intention, a very partial list. But secondly, the list is intended to demonstrate that sin is the absence of love. That when you do these things, it's because you don't love your neighbor as yourself. It's because you don't love the Lord your God. You, in fact, love yourself. You don't want to be instructed. You don't want to be told what to do. You want to do whatever it is that you want. So the four categories I gave. Self-gratification. Number one, rather than loving your neighbor. Secondly, putting something in the place of God. Well, if you're not going to love God... You've got to have something that you're going to love in the place of God, and that's usually yourself. Thirdly, you refuse to love your neighbor, and here we have these sins of of hatred and discord and dissensions, factions, all these things. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. You don't love your neighbor. And lastly, you're out of control, which is what drunkenness illustrates. You're like, well, wait a minute. How is lack of self-control, how does being out of control not loving my neighbor? Control is not so much for you. It's for the community. You're not simply a lone ranger by yourself. You're part of a family, of a community. And because you are, you have to watch what you do. You have to be marked by self-control. There may be things you want to do, but you choose not to do it because somebody else may see you and imitate you. I think this is perhaps one of the most difficult things of being a parent, and I'm not a parent, but I think one of the things that would just haunt you is that when your kids see you doing something you shouldn't do, and they imitate you. I mean, the reason you... Hopefully, part of the reason is why you don't do the things you shouldn't do is because your kids are following your example. So you care about your family, therefore you watch what you do. You control yourself. You have self-control because you love your kids. 
And those of us who don't have kids, it doesn't mean we can do what we want. We have self-control because we have neighbors. We have extended families. We have people who look to us. And because we love them, we will exercise self-control. So the sins that we've looked at today, basically we would put the category here of non-love. You don't love your neighbor. In the new way, in the new life, in the kingdom, life in the spirit, it's love. That is what is to direct us. And again, the Lord willing, we will see this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in some small way, the truth of your word has come through. I suspect that we are more uh, contaminated by our culture than we realize. Come to see the Christian faith as almost a form of magic, of technique, of getting what we want. We see it as individualistic and pragmatic. So when we think of new life, we oftentimes just think about ourselves. And in that way, we're thinking in the old way. The sins that Paul mentions illustrate for us so clearly that if we are not motivated by love, love of neighbor, love of God, then we will do some things we shouldn't do. Again, Father, I ask that in some small way your truth will come through. May we think on these things in the days to come. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.